You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. What's up, Refuge family? Hey, it's uh, great to be back with you. I know last week we heard from Sean, our executive pastor. I'm so excited to be with you. I hope you had a Merry Christmas. I hope you enjoyed your time together um, over the holidays. Uh, Hey, I am just so excited to be with you. Uh, If you don't know me, that's great. My name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here at Refuge. Um, Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. If you do me a favor, we would love to connect with you. Refuge is a new church in Southeast Austin, and we love making connections with new people. And so jump into the video description. If you can do me this favor, hit the connect link, uh, share a little bit of that information with us. We would love to learn how to pray for you, how to connect with you. Uh, send that over to us. We would love to, to just, just get to know you a little bit more. And so thank you again for joining us. And, and again, we cannot wait to connect with you. Now, uh, onto the task at hand. We're going to jump into the word. Uh, we are closing out the year. Again, as a reminder, next week we will not be having church, but we're closing out the year today, um, working through something that's just been on my heart. Um, if I'm being honest, this is a unique time to preach, right? Um, in preaching circles, it, it can almost feel like um, a bit of a, I'm not a throwaway week, that's not right, but almost like a bit of a, a week where it's like, hey, this is a transition week between next year and after Christmas, right? It's a unique time to preach, but we, we finished 2020, we're, we're finishing Christmas, or we already finished Christmas, and, and we're moving forward, we have this hope, but uh, if I'm being honest, I'm, I'm burdened a bit, I should say, as, uh, as a shepherd, okay, as the pastor of our church, not by us finishing 2020 or by Christmas being over. Those things happen, right? What I'm actually burdened by is the question of as we leave 2020, okay, I'm, I'm burdened by the question of what we've gained from 2020, what we're leaving 2020 with. We know what we've lost. It's not hard to think about what we've lost in a year like 2020. That's pretty easy, right? But to contrast that, what have we gained? And the reason that burdens me, the reason it concerns me is because as we walk through a year like 2020, it's easy to lose sight of what we've been given in it as we wrestle through um, our own self-sufficiency. That's a concern for me, if I'm being honest, right? We live in a culture that celebrates self-sufficiency, okay? We celebrate being self-sufficient enough to pay our own bills and to have a place of our own, to move out by the time we're 18, 20 tops, right? To, to, to try to go to school afterwards or something like that. And, and if after school to get a great job and to provide for ourselves. And then if we get married, right, then, then we uh, got to make sure our, our spouse is taken care of and emotionally healthy. If we have kids, we got to make sure they're good and they're doing well in school. And after all that, I got to make sure I get to the gym because, you know, uh, I got a summer's around the corner. And then on top of all of that, I got to make sure that I get my self-care in because I'm, I'm so tired. I'm, I'm doing so good at being self-sufficient in all these other areas. I got to make sure I take care of myself. Uh, all of these things that we're taught to be self-reliant and self-sufficient in. And yet we don't even realize that each act of self-sufficiency is like a stone. A stone that's meant to prove, if to no one else than to myself, that I am all and everything that I need. Each one a stone that puts a little bit more space between me and other people. Each a stone that builds on top 
that builds on top of one another, each, each act of self-sufficiency building up, eventually building a wall that separates us from everything and everyone on the other side. And that's what self-sufficiency does. You may not even know it, but you've probably been exactly where I'm describing, right? That this place where you would love to share the heartache you're feeling from relational strife, but that wall prevents you because you're scared to let someone in, right? That you probably, you've, in your life, you've probably longed to let someone into the fear that you have of financial insecurity, but that wall tells you that you'll be perceived as weak if you cry out for help, right? That feeling of, hurt when marriage issues are are present but you're you're also scared because you don't you don't want to ruin the reputation you've built by letting someone see that other side of you that wall before you know it we've locked ourselves into a prison of our own making we've locked ourselves into hear me what i would describe as the shackles of self-sufficiency and that's just normal life what i described right there is a normal life now what happens when you add in Right. You take your self-sufficiency, our self-sufficiency, and you add in a pandemic that drives home financial insecurity because of the economy, that drives home relational strife because of uh, depression and anxiety, that drives home right professional or maybe educational shortcomings because of uh, these platforms like Zoom and the struggles that's producing in a year like 2020, where it feels like so much has been taken from us and so much has been put onto us, more burdens. It's my concern, right? I'm burdened by the possibility that we'll leave this year clinging to our own self-sufficiency, believing that 2021 is the actual answer and missing the great hope that's available uh, to you, that's available to me, that far outshines 2021 and is actually meant to sustain us far beyond 2021, right? And so, so what do we do? Okay, where do we go from here? Well, first I want to tell you that there's, there's hope, right? There's hope for freedom from self-sufficiency and the prison that it puts us in. But I also want to say that it's not easy. It, it calls us to uh, reevaluate how we see ourselves and, and it challenges us to, to kind of, I think, reevaluate who we are. Yet when we do that, it, it also gives way to uh, an assurance, to a hope that doesn't fail, but rather sustains us even in the hardest seasons of our lives, 2020 or anything else. And so today what I want to do is I want to jump into Psalm 130 and I want to um, see what Psalm 130 teaches us, I should say, about self-sufficiency. And, and here's my, my main takeaway for us today is that true hope is only found when we rely on the one who's sufficient to meet our needs. True hope is only found when we rely on the one who is actually sufficient. All right. To help us grasp this idea, I want to break the text down into three like action items, right? Like three actions I believe Psalm 130 is calling us to. And we find the, the, the first in verses one and two, and it's to cry out. I believe that Psalm 130 calls us to cry out. And so let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, I'm going to be in Psalm 130. You uh, can read in whatever version you would like, but I'm going to be coming out of the CSB and that'll be what's on your screen. Psalm 130 starts like this. Out of the depths, I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Um, join me in a quick prayer over our time. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time in your word. Empty me, let me speak your word. And Father, let us all receive from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so as we jump into 130, right, we're, we're, we're questioning, we're looking, exploring what Psalm 130 tells us about self-sufficiency. We're introduced to the author, the psalmist. 
who is in a place of distress. How do we know that? Because they would describe their current position as the depths. Okay, the depths, something dark, something sunken, something remote. If you're picturing like the depths of the sea far away from everything, you're 100% correct, right? And, but what makes this even more interesting is that the original word here has an even deeper connotation, right? Not just is it remote, but it's also isolating, meaning it almost feels alone. And you may relate to this because maybe you felt some of this before, right? Like, like you ever felt so much pain, so much grief, so much sorrow that you were sure that no one could possibly understand how you were feeling, right? You feel alone. That's where the author, the psalmist is, grieved, distressed, ashamed, hurting to the point that he or she feels in the depths, feels by themselves, feels alone. Yet it's from this position, this isolation, this remoteness, this aloneness, that we see almost like a unique response to that, to that scenario. It's almost counterintuitive. In this isolation, in this loneliness, we see the author cry out for help. Cry out for help. It's almost supposed to be like ironic, right? That, that in isolation, in loneliness, we see the author finally cry out for help outside of him or herself to someone greater, something greater than themselves. Why? Why in this space of loneliness is it the time where we finally come to understand that we need help? Friends, because it's not until we're all alone that we realize self-sufficiency is insufficient. It's not until we're all alone that we realize self-sufficiency is insufficient. It's not until we've fought as hard as we can, until we've tried everything that we can, until we've clawed as deep as we can, that we realize our best is oftentimes just not enough. And you may can relate to this as well, right? If you're anything like me, I surely do. The realization that no matter how many new relational rhythms we build, no matter how many uh, counseling sessions we go to, how many uh, second opinions we get, how many strategies to break our rut we implement, right? Like, it seems to never ever be enough. Because it's not until we're alone that we realize self-sufficiency is insufficient. And this is horrifying for us, right? This is actually what makes crying out for help so difficult, reckoning with our insufficiency, right? When we cry out for help, it forces us to reckon with our own weaknesses, our inabilities, our failures. And it means conceding that the picture that I've built up for you about myself or that I've built up for myself about myself, that that picture is actually a lie. And if that picture is a lie, I wonder, will I be judged? Will I be seen different? Will I lose status? Will I lose influence? It's a threat. Because when we're, when we're just on the cusp of crying out for help, there's this lie from the enemy that comes in and says, no, don't cry for help. Because w- what if it changes everything? What if you look, look down upon? What if you're judged? What if you're rejected? X, Y, and Z. But we're called to cry out. And in our, our cry, we're called to confess. We're called to confess our inadequacies, our insufficiencies. Because it's in this confession that we begin to find freedom. You've heard me talk about this before, right? That, and that's our second action item I should, I should note right there, right? Is to confess. I believe Psalm 130, in its encouragement for us to, to cry out, also calls us to confess, right? Because it's in our confession that our greatest fears end up giving way to, to our greatest hope. Watch this. Watch this. In verses 3 and 4, it says, 
Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. Okay, in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist comes to term with, hey, I need help. I'm inadequate. I'm insufficient. And yet, in verse 3, we see a very normal and human response. That doesn't mean it's a right response, but a very normal response. Right? How could I possibly be with you? Look at me. Like, like, think about this language. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquity, a.k.a. wrongdoing, who could stand? In other words, if you saw me, the real me, right, how could I ask you for help? How could I deserve your help or be worthy of your help, of your help, much less your love and affection? Right? This is a very normal response when we're, we're making a confession that, that it, it infringes, it attacks our self-worth. And here's the reason. Because oftentimes confessions are connected to self-worth. Confessions are connected. They reveal our self-worth. They reveal what we've built our self-worth on. Right, check this out. When, when confessions are difficult, it's like 100% of the time because we've built our self-worth on our self-sufficiency. I want to say that again. When confessions are difficult, it's like 100% chance that it's because our self-worth is built on our self-sufficiency. It's like 100% chance that we've placed our hope in a fallible, broken, insufficient, easily frightened person, aka myself or yourself, right? And then we set out to prove to ourselves, others, God, that we have something to offer, that we are strong enough, that we are wise enough, that we are good enough, that we are worth love, that we're worth sacrificing for, that I have something to offer the world and to God and to you. And when this is what we've built our self-value on, when we fail, it all crumbles and kind of like just, just gets thrown into the sea, right? Like, it's horrifying, and this idea, this almost like this almost value, this weight system of, of really showing how much we're, we're worth, showing how much we've earned, it's most dangerous when we apply it to God. Because when it extends to God, when it applies to God, it creates this mess of distorted views, right? Like, like think about it. When we are in this sort of bargaining agreement with God, think about how this mindset impacts how we see like, like storms, hardships, Right? Uh, in this context, a storm is unfair and unjust unless I believe I deserve it. And then if I deserve it, right, th then it means that I'm not, I'm not receiving discipline from a loving God, but instead I'm receiving punishment from a vengeful God. Right, right, right. Like, like such a distortion of how God actually wants us to see the hardship of our lives. Think about blessings, Right. When we're in this bargaining agreement with God, blessings instead of gifts are turned into rights, things we've earned, things we can demand, and things that honestly, right, like if we don't have, we can call God into question and say, I demand that you should have given me this. And if we haven't earned the gifts, then all of a sudden they become like a down payment from a bad, vengeful boss who's demanding more from us, right? All the while, God's looking at us full of compassion, longing for us to just come to him, not to experience judgment, not to experience harshness, but rather to experience care and compassion, right? Remember verse four, verse four that said, but with you there is what? Forgiveness. Why? So that you can be revered, so that you can be worshipped. Right? While we build these prisons for ourselves of self-sufficiency, God desires for us to come to him and to experience our failures meeting his grace and his grace winning. 
right? To confess where we've fallen short, where we've failed, where we're hurting, where we're ashamed, and be met with the uplifting truth um, that none, none of that can separate us from his love, right? This is an amazing place to be because when we come to terms with the truth of how little we've earned, we realize how much we've been given, right? When we come to terms with the truth of how little we've earned, we realize how much we've been given, and that's refreshing, right? It takes all the pressure off of what we have to do, what we need to prove. It's awesome. I, I love the way uh, pastor and author Tim Keller sums this up. In, in one of his devotionals, he writes this just perfectly. He says, The skeptic asks why any force capable of generating this vast universe would have regard for tiny, short-lived beings uh, on a speck of dust called Earth. But for those who know my loving God, that's just the point. There is no good reason for God to care about us. But amazingly, he does. He doesn't love us because we benefit him in some way. How could we? He loves us simply because he loves us. That's why we praise him. This is critical, friends. Without this realization that God's goodness is bigger than our failures, we can never experience, much less live out, Psalm 130's third action item. Right, which is to hope, to anticipate, to, to, to be assured, right, to have confidence. Right, this is the opposite of despair. And, and yet without the realization that God is good, we can never live this out. Check this out. Check this out in verse 6. In verse 5 and 6, I should say. Verse 5 and 6 say, I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Having confessed shortcomings, having confessed failures, having brought them to the feet of a merciful and compassionate God, we find almost like a counterintuitive result, right? Rather than bringing those great fears and being met with rejection, being met with, um, with kind of belittling, we see the psalmist actually receives assurance. The psalmist receives assurance that God will deliver, that God will redeem, that God will rescue, not based on the psalmist's goodness to earn the rescue, but based on God's goodness to give the rescue. Hear me again, rather than being met with, with rejection or with, with belittling, the psalmist is given assurance that God will rescue, not based on the psalmist's goodness to earn it, but based on God's goodness to give it. The psalmist says, I place my hope in God's word, in his promises, and then paints this beautiful word picture saying that, that he waits for the Lord like a watchman waits for the morning. And what does that mean? It, it's, it's supposed to create a picture of assurance, of confidence. I love the way Derek Kidner, he, he describes this in his commentary on Psalms. He's a theologian and a professor. He says, in plain terms, he speaks of a promise, aka God's word to cling to. And in picturing the watchman, he chooses as his simile a hope that will not fail. Night may seem endless, but morning is certain and it's time determined. Man, hope that doesn't fail because darkness endures for a night, but we're promised that that light will inevitably pierce darkness the way the sun inevitably pierces through the night. Assurance, anticipation, belief, hope that what's coming is not bad, but what's coming is rescue. 
Friends, that's impossible when the only thing you're weighing out in your life is whether you've earned the rescue or not. But when God's goodness is the basis by which we are rescued, then assurance, hope, a future is promised, not in flux. And what's beautiful is we actually just got through celebrating this idea, right? Because this is actually what we celebrate in Christmas. It's the truth that God's promise to rescue, God's promise of light, God's promise of hope, eternal and unshakable, has finally come. But in this precious baby, but in this fragile little human born in a barn, right? Sorry. It's what makes songs like Hark the Herald sings amazing, right? That we could sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, that this, this king in a barn, that this kid in a barn is actually the king of the universe, right? It, it, it's why lines like, Pleased is man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, are so incredible because they tell the story of this God existing before everything, creating everything, but entering into, leaving that splendor and entering into the brokenness of our world in order to rescue us. It's, it's incredible, right? I wonder if the psalmist even knew what he was writing when he finished this psalm in verse 8 by saying, and he, who? God himself will redeem Israel from all of her iniquities. And God himself would enter into the world and do it. Why is the hope that we talk about eternal and unchanging and unfailing? Because God has sealed that hope in blood. Because God himself, right? It, it's a hope that's been sealed in blood by God himself. It's in Jesus. It's in God with us that every one of our failures has been paid for. It's in Jesus, God with us, that every one of our shortcomings has been made up for. It's in Jesus, God with us, that every bit of our shame has been dealt with, that every bit of our pain now has a future, now has a hope. When Jesus takes the cross, he permanently etches in eternity that Josh, that you, right, that whoever believes in him has has been forgiven permanently by his blood. And when he resurrects from the grave, he eternally assures us that the hope that we have been longing for is not going to continue unmet forever, but that through him, he has delivered it. Through Jesus, it has been promised. It has been given. We have been assured. Friends, the brokenness we experience on earth, the brokenness we experience in this life, listen to me, whether it be financial, whether it be in health, whether it be heart and relational, it only lasts so long. It can only last so long. It has a short shelf life because whether in this life or in eternity, there will come a day where we have the full experience of knowing that God himself has defeated them, that God himself has overcome them, that God himself reigns victorious over them. Our job in 2020 or in 2021 or whatever time, whatever year, whatever age is not to go out and prove that we have earned God's rescue in order to experience and to accept it, but rather to run into the arms of a loving, gracious, compassionate God who is waiting to accept us into his arms, into his family, into his love, into his acceptance, not with rejection, not with belittling, but rather to bring us in whole and to assure us that what we long for most has been purchased and has been guaranteed by his son. That's our job. That's our job. 2021 ain't going to offer that. 2020 for sure ain't offer that. But 2021, 
coronavirus, uh, uh, COVID vaccines, none of that provides what we're talking about. This is a hope that says that if I get a COVID vaccine, if the pandemic is over, if my job is better, if my marriage gets better, if my whole life is 100% great and I die still not having earned everything I hoped for, the goodness of God, right, is present to say your failures have been covered in the life given and resurrected of Jesus, right? Come on, y'all. Sorry, I'm raining it in, man, because I'm pumped up here. Come on. That's our job, to run to him. That's our job, to run to a good God. It really reminds me of an experience I had as a little boy, and some of you might have heard this story before, but uh, when I was a little boy, my uncle Juan, he had a, a dog named Mookie. And let me tell you, Mookie had to be the biggest gosh dog pit bull I had ever seen in my entire life, y'all. I'm talking 80 to 90 pounds of just sheer muscle. My man was just, bah. When they walked him, they would have to tie the string of the rope or whatever, uh, or chain around their hand and put a glove on because Mookie could just like tear the skin off if he like went after a squirrel or something. Dude was massive. And as a result, for a 10, 11, 12 year old boy, it was super intimidating to be around Mookie. And it felt like he could like smell my fear. <laughs> it felt like he could like smell my fear when I was around him, right? Like it was just like, it was so tense because he was so powerful. He was so strong, right? I felt like at 10, he might've been my own size. Like he was just a huge dog. And I remember one day I was at my uncle's house, Mookie's in the backyard, but me and my cousins had actually gone out into the street somewhere in the neighborhood to play football with other kids in the neighborhood. And we're playing, we're having fun, all that good stuff. And then as we're playing, um, I remember turning and looking and, and around the corner, this dog came out. And, and I remember that the dog stopped and it just started looking at us. And I remember looking at my cousins and as they looked and stared at the dog, their, uh, I stared at the dog, their face kind of just got flushed, like all the color drained out. One of them just dropped the football. And I look back at the dog and I see the dog begin to crouch down and to, to, to start um, growling. And the dog wasn't like pleasing to look at. Tell, let me tell you, like he had mange and he had like scars all over the place. And, and it, it, it almost felt like in each second, the tension was just rising until finally there was this release and the dog just burst out and started running after us. And I remember in a split second, turning back to my cousins and they were gone, right? They were like, man, bum Josh. And so I just fell in line and took off after him. Um, and as we were running, I, I realized that we were running toward my uncle's house and that made sense. But as we came to my uncle's house, what didn't make sense is, is as we got to the driveway, going left led to the door, but going right led to the yard. And in my mind, I thought, why aren't we going to the door? Because they took off to the right into the yard. And we're running and we're running and we turn the corner to the back. And in the, in the corner of my eye, I realize why they're running to the backyard. Because as we turn the corner into the backyard, I, I just, in my peripheral, see Mookie just pop up. I mean, fast. Pop up. And I can faintly hear the steps of the attacking dog behind me. And as he turns the corner... He's met by this power and by this ferocity of Mookie grabbing him and just taking him down. And Mookie threw him to the right, he threw him to the left, and finally the dog, uh, the attacking dog, squirmed out and jetted out and left and just hightailed it out of there. And we went and we, we gathered around Mookie, we were petting him, everyone was celebrating, you know, Mookie's tail was going crazy and he's just like loving all the attention. And I'm 100% positive that dog ate good that night. Um, right? All this fun. 
celebrating the truth that Mookie was ours and that we were Mookie and that in his power, right, we were safe. We had hope. Friends, when the storms of life bear down on us and they're ugly and they're scary and they're hard, whether it be in our health, whether it be in our money, whether it be in our own failures, friends, we run to the one in whom we find safety, in whom we find security, in whom we find hope, not because we have bargained and that we earn it, but because in his power and in his goodness, he reigns and he's declared that we are his the one who reigns victorious, that sits enthroned on high, yet lowers himself into the brokenness of this world to care for the lowly and to care for the hurting and to forgive the guilty. Friends, as we close this year, my desire is is to not let this year pass by without gaining that. Right, 2020 may have brought some hard things for you. It may have brought may have brought pain, sickness, financial loss. Maybe you're like the psalmist. You've experienced failure and, and you're wrestling with the consequences of that. My desire is that we would lay down the shackles of self-sufficiency that tell us that is the gauge of whether we're loved, that that is the gauge of whether we're rescued, that that is the gauge of whether we have earned it, whether we can be happy, whether we can have joy, whether we can have freedom. But to exchange that, and rejoice, exchange it for the rejoicing that happens when we rely on a loving, merciful, caring God who hasn't just promised to deliver us, but has entered into the darkness of this world in order to see us set free. That's my hope. Family, I, I hope that 2021, as we move into this next year, is, is encouraging for us, is building up for us, but But I pray that that comes from us relying on God and depending on God, experiencing his grace, experiencing his compassion, running into his arms with every moment of fear, with every moment of of sadness, with every moment of, uh, of concern, with every moment of insecurity to run to him in hope and in faith that, and in knowledge, right? In trust that he will deliver, if not in this world, if not in this life, then in eternity, in the next. And to be given joy in that, right? That's my desire for you. That's what I long for for you. That's what I long for for us as a church as we enter into this new year. To finish up today, I have two applications, okay? Two applications that I want to to encourage you uh, to put into practice that, that really will, will help us, in my belief, build like a rhythm of reliance on God and his goodness as we move into 2021. The first is that I want to encourage you to invite your brothers and sisters into your pain, into your grief, into your shame. It can be hard to be vulnerable. And oftentimes, like, like it almost seems like crazy, but it's almost like harder to be vulnerable with God than with like other people sometimes, right? Like we know he knows, but we don't want to say it to him, that type of thing. Uh, yet in scripture, one of the most tangible ways we experience God's character is through God's people. Or you think about James 5 that says to confess into one another, not just to God, but to one another. Why? Because we experience God's grace when we confess sin to his people and, and God shows his compassion and grace through his people, through the Holy Spirit working in his people. So we feel God's arms embrace us. We feel God's forgiveness toward us through his people. And so invite your brothers and sisters into your pain, into your grief, into your shame, even if you can't quite let God into it yet. 
And the second one is to pray the promises of Scripture over yourself. Now, this sounds weird, but, but hear me out for a second. Pray the promises of Scripture over yourself. Pray Psalm 130, right? Talks about deliverance and hope and rescue, redemption. Pray that over yourself. Pray the hope of Romans 5, the resurrection of Roman, of 1 Corinthians 15, right? These texts that give us great promises that are encouraging to our hearts. Pray them over yourself, but pray them over yourself by first confessing that you've not earned them. Pray them over yourself by first confessing that you have not earned them. And after that, praising God that Jesus has. That Jesus has earned the redemption and rescue of Psalm 130. That Jesus has earned the hope of Romans 5. That Jesus has earned the resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15. And from there, thank God in gratitude that it's, in, that it's through Jesus laying down his hope, laying down his life, uh, laying down his deliverance that we now get to experience and receive deliverance that we haven't earned. Experience and receive hope that we have not earned. And now get to share and place our hope in a resurrection, in sharing that resurrection with Jesus that we have not earned. When we pray these prayers of gratitude, right, of confession in the promises of Scripture, they build up our spirit and they really free us to rely on God and to experience His goodness more. I am praying that 2021 would be a year for us, family, marked by hope, marked by joy, marked by freedom. Not because a pandemic is over, not because it's a new year and a fresh start, but but rather because we find hope, freedom, and joy in the only one that's sufficient enough to place hope, freedom, and joy in. Okay? I love y'all. I appreciate y'all. I I hope you have an amazing new year. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray to finish up today, and then we're going to go into worship, then jump back in for a benediction. Um, Again, as a last reminder, before we pray, we're not having service next week, uh, and so we encourage you to kind of reset from this year and to, to prepare your heart for next year. I want to make sure I said that so I don't forget to do it in a second. Let's go ahead and pray and then jump into worship. Father, thank you so much for your time, I mean for your word and for your spirit at work here in our community. Thank you that as we walk through life, the enemy, our flesh, our culture, all try to lie to us and tell us that, that hope, that joy, that freedom are dependent on us. Yet your word pierces through the lies and the darkness of our self-sufficiencies. And they, they, they declare, your, your word declares to us that it is your goodness that has given us freely from the abundance of your hope, your joy, your freedom, your redemption. So God, let us think. Let us be thankful for that. Let us run into your arms. Let this year be marked by, by our reliance on you, our dependence on you, our joy in you. I love you. I thank you. I pray these things over us as a church, over us as a family. Um, We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love y'all. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.